Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our special New England Public Radio event, a conversation with NPR international correspondent, Afebia Quist-Arcton. I'm Kathy Roberts-Ford, chair of the UMass Journalism Department, and it's my honor to introduce Afebia and her partner in conversation today, UMass history professor, John Higginson. Afebia Quist-Arcton is one of the voices of NPR News in Africa. In her long career, she has covered the emergence and rise of democracy in Africa and the outbreak of civil wars, revolutions, and coups. She reports to on the arts, cultures, and literatures of Africa, her special passion. Recently, she has kept NPR listeners informed about Al-Qaeda-linked activities in, in West Africa, efforts to contain and eradicate the Ebola virus in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, protests in South Africa calling for the resignation of the president, and how cell phone technology and climate challenges are changing farming in West Africa. Based in Senegal, Afebia has been part of the NPR family since 2004. Before that, she traveled Africa and the globe reporting for the BBC and the world. When she worked for the world, a co-production with the BBC, PRI, and WGBH in Boston, she was our neighbor, living in Cambridge and getting to know Massachusetts, New England, and a new language related to snow, she has said. <laughs> she grew up in Ghana, Italy, Britain, and Kenya. She studied at the London School of Economics and the Polytechnic of Central London, where she specialized in radio journalism, and we're also glad she did that. Today, Afebia Quist-Arcton is joined by UMass history professor John Higginson to talk about her long, rich career covering the African continent and the political, economic, and social issues facing African nations today. Professor Higginson is also a research fellow in the College of Human Sciences and the Department of History at the University of South Africa. His most recent book is Collective Violence and the Agrarian Origins of South African Apartheid. 1900 to 1948. Please join me in thanking New England Public Radio and Martin Miller, CEO and General Manager of NEPR, for bringing Afebia to us today and for enriching our shared public life every day with its serious and expansive reportage and cultural offerings. And now, please join me in welcoming Ms. Afebia Quist-Arcton and Professor John Higginson our event today will consist of about 20 minute, a 20-minute conversation with our guests, followed by what I'm sure will be a very robust Q&A with the audience. Thank you, and thank, thank you. you. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me? All right. Well, look. Let's talk to our world-famous journalist, Ms. Ophabia Quist-Arcton, who has graced the airways for at least a generation and taught us a whole lot about many, many things. Um, I'm going to try to lead off with an quest open-ended question, if that's all right with you. Please go ahead, Prof. Ophabia. Yes. Well, if you, if you could for a moment, what what are some of the cultural fa fallacies about Africa 
that Western listeners to your program need to disabuse themselves of or unlearn. That our beloved and extraordinary continent is all about war and uh, disease and doom and gloom. Mm. And I blame myself for this narrative as much as I blame everyone. I'm sure you all know. Africa is an extraordinary continent, 54 countries, uh, how many different languages, cultures, arts, people, and so much going on that is much, much, much more than conflict and disease. The problem is there is conflict and disease, and we must report on that too. But at least I, as a reporter, do try and give a broader brush to the canvas that is Africa, and such a huge canvas, which is why we do try to cover the arts. We do try to cover culture, technology, science, the continent where people are innovating, people are inventing, and the youth especially are saying, oh, away with that old African narrative. We are the present, we are the leaders, and we will show you that Africa is a continent worth, very much worth listening to, watching, and following. Thank you very much. That's, that leads right into our second question, so to speak. 60% uh, of the African population is under 21 years of age. Uh, by 2050, uh, the African continent will have a workforce that is as large as China or India's. Uh, at the same time, youth unemployment in, uh, is the continent's most urgent problem. Um, how do we unleash the potential in these numbers for a better future for the continent as a whole? And it's the very question that the youth of Africa are asking of their leaders, some of whom are doing an excellent job, some a middling job, and some are bombing. F, F, F all the way, zero out of 20. The youth are saying, look, you've sent us for education. We have become educated. We have a lot to contribute. Make the most of us. And you have some African leaders who are simply not doing that. They're not harnessing what is positive about the continent, what is positive. The fact that, you know, Africa has an unlimited supply of workers. Depending on whose figures you believe, you have how many percent of the population under the age of either 20, 25, 30, whichever figures, you look at a huge amount. And many young people, of course, wanting to contribute, wanting to make sure that their imprint is on Africa. So I think much more African leaderships have to focus on, instead of spending huge budgets on defense and war, although, of course, security is a legitimate concern of the continent, to put much more into education, much more into health, to ensure that you have a healthy, educated, youthful population that can contribute. But 
young people are not just sitting around waiting for governments to make the decisions for them. They are innovating their starting setups. They're going off for their education. Some of them staying home in African countries. Many coming to the United States. Many African students here in the US. During the colonial era and uh, post-independence, it was very much either Britain or France or Portugal, the former colonial powers on the continent. But many seeing that they can get a really solid education here in the US, head back home and help their continents. But where are those jobs? Many young people are saying, we're, we're not waiting around to be given jobs. We're starting up our own setups, you know, startups, uh, be it in technology, be it they find a niche market. for some, They're looking for gaps in the market. They are filling them. But of course, that's the privileged elite youth there are many, many others who don't have those privileges, who do not have those advantages. And so education back home, improving the standard and level of education in Africa is a priority I think not enough leaders are taking seriously enough. Thank you very much. Yes, that, that is certainly, uh, from my own observations, the future is with the young people, uh, and people have to accommodate them. And one other dimension that makes it even more urgent, I think, is the current Chinese presence uh, throughout the continent in terms of investment uh, and in terms of building infrastructural uh, project, building infrastructural projects, and so on. Uh, where do you think, the, what do you think the net result of the Chinese presence uh, in many African countries will be? The Chinese narrative is a very important one and very interesting one. China has done its homework on Africa. China knew what it wanted out of Africa, especially the extractive industry. They knew they wanted minerals to boost their own, their burgeoning economy. Before the doldrums, we find China's economy in these days, but for the past 10, 15 years, China went straight to the countries it knew could give them that. It built roads in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is operating in Ethiopia. It is all over the continent because China knew what it, it had a plan, and it went about that plan. What about Africa? You know, we were asking as journalists way back when it was clear that China was coming to Africa. What is Africa's plan? What is Africa's, uh, what are Africa's priorities? What does Africa want to get from China? But instead of uh, the African Union working as a unit, you know, 54, we are one billion people in Africa now. One bit, that, that rivals China. You know, if we had done this collectively as a continent, you wouldn't, I think, hear what you're hearing many people saying that this has been a second colonization, China coming in, taking what it wanted from Africa, disappearing with it, and refining it, be it oil or minerals or whatever, in China. But what has that left Africa? Did China bring its know-how? Did China bring its expertise? Did it transfer those skills to Africa? Many people will tell you no. There were in uh, Zambia, a copper-producing country, one of the top copper-producing countries in Africa, riots saying that Chinese labor practices were, uh, you know, f forget the colonial era. And 
saying that this is not what Africa needs. You don't need Chinese people pushing as one opposition leader as he was then, the late president of Zambia, Michael Sata, telling me, we don't need to be taught how to push wheelbarrows. We know how to do that. What we need to learn is digital technology and the sorts of skills that are going to push the continent forward. But how come Africa wasn't ready to ask those questions collectively to ensure that uh, the Chinese coming to Africa wouldn't mean that Africa was denuded all over again? Then talk, of course, of the human rights issue. You know, many African leaders say we're fed up of being uh, dictated to by the hectoring West, be it the Washington administration or the European former colonial powers. You know, they talk about human rights, but they abuse human rights. They talk about Africa being uh, full of conflict, but they cause conflicts abroad. You get many ordinary Africans who also agree. They say, look what happened in Libya. U Europe and the US were so quick to unseat Muammar Gaddafi, but look at the effect it has had on <laughs> Africa, the neighboring countries. Look at the number of guns and weapons that crossed Libya's border. Look what happened not so far away in Mali. For one year, the north of Mali, including Timbuktu, our ancient university city in northern Mali, occupied by extremist insurgents for one year. So many questions are being asked. So yes, China has come to Africa, but what does Africa need from China? Many people are saying we failed in that. We've allowed China to get away with exploiting Africa, just as the former colonial powers did. Thank you. Um, I think I'm going to ask one more question, and I think then we'll turn it over to the audience, if that's all right yeah, with sure you, Ms. Yeah. Um, the question I have, it bears on this question of the, you know, the, the way in which the world is, the way in which the world has been changed by microprocessing and genetic engineering. Uh, all of us, wherever we are, in, in the United States, Europe, Africa, Asia, we have all been profoundly affected uh, by these, the practical implementation uh, of these uh, features. And it's most dramatic, I think, uh, in the case of Africa, but perhaps especially so in East Africa. The movement of money via mobile text uh, in Africa amounted to well over a trillion dollars in 2016. Um, how has the use of networks such as M-Pesa uh, in East Africa and micro-lending uh, to small and mid-sized entrepreneurs changed the economic context of everyday life uh, in various African countries? Telephony in Africa has taken off. It has soared, so much so that Nigeria, MTN, which is a South Africa-based telecoms giant, is being fined five, well, the figures come down, but initially in December, $5.2 billion, $5.2 billion for failing to deactivate 5.2 million SIM cards. It was that were meant to be registered. The government had told all uh, cell phone providers that they needed to ensure that all SIM cards had been registered. And MTN, which was the first into Nigeria and has made 
big money because Nigeria is our giant, almost 200, and almost 200 million people it had failed to do this. But it's just to tell you the penetration of cell phone usage in Africa, that figure is just huge. Prof mentioned M-Pesa, M for mobile, Pesa meaning money in Swahili, started in about 2008. I remember, because I was in Kenya, actually covering uh, the post-election violence, and I went to see Michael Josephs. He was CEO of Safaricom, one of the big, uh, one of the big, one of the big cell phone providers in Nairobi. And I, he showed me how M-Pesa worked. And I remember, you know, pre the smartphone era, but he pinged me some money to, he SMSed it, he texted me money. And so that was the beginning of M-Pesa, which has revolutionized Africa. Many people don't have bank accounts. Many people can't open bank accounts. But in this way, they are able to send money, they are able to send phone credit, they are able to pay for groceries, they are able to pay for school fees, and it has been replicated all over the continent. Go to any African country and they have their equivalent of Impesa. And it shows how technology, mm -hmm. technology and harnessing and using technology is moving the continent forward and how Africa has grabbed hold of this and is moving with it. I was at the Cambridge conference in the, uh, the Camden conference in Maine at the weekend, the theme New Africa. There was a young entrepreneur called Sangu Dele from Ghana and he said, yes, excellent, but who is selling those cell phones to Africa? It's not Africans. He, as one of the young entrepreneurs of the continent, is just on the cusp of an Africa-developed cell phone, I think it was called Solo, that they are going to start selling at an affordable price. For all of us here who are privileged, buying a smartphone is doable, but for many Africans, it's not. And yet it's technology that is going to ensure that uh, the continent moves forward. Yes, yes, well, thank you. One, one more general question for me, and then I think I want to turn it over to the office, uh, audience. Over to the audience. There we are. Uh, very simply, where are the two largest economies on the continent, Nigeria and South Africa? Where are they going? We hope upwards, forwards, and onwards, <laughs> Prof, because without Nigeria and South Africa as success stories, the rest of us suffer and may fail. I mean, it is so important that Nigeria, our number one, which is the top economy, as you said, top crude, crude oil exporter, most populous nation, one in four Africans is a Nigerian. It's very important that Nigeria succeeds politically, economically, socially, and much, much more. Nigeria now has a new leader over, oh, when was I there for the elections? End of March, so he was sworn in, must have been end of April or May, yeah. just under a year, yeah. President Muhammadu Buhari. Now, every time I went for elections in Nigeria, I would groan, because it's such an extraordinary, vibrant, fantastic country, but often the elections were a violent, be rigged, three, a disaster. So as I prepared myself about a year ago, because it must have been February, to go to Nigeria to cover the elections, I thought, you know, again, we're going to have to deal. We got to Nigeria, 
and our giant surprised everyone. It held elections that were mainly peaceful and through the ballot box, an elected leader was thrown out of office and a new one elected. Nigerians even were surprised at this. You know, many of them had said, you know, you don't have faith in us. It will happen. And to be honest, uh, jaded journalist that I am, I thought, well, perhaps it should happen because that is the Nigerian voters' will, but will it happen? So there is hope and we can see that change can happen. Nigeria is such an important country that it was, it was crucial that it held elections that were transparent and that could be considered free and fair. It happened, Nigeria is moving forward, not without its problems. It, of course, it has huge problems. South Africa, the second largest economy, for a long time, the top economy on the continent and the most industrialized. And of course, industrialization is huge to make Africa work, has issues. We know that uh, former President Nelson Mandela died just over two years ago. He was buried and he had the vision of what he called the rainbow nation. Now many people will say to you that South Africa has gone back to being black and white. It has issues, not only issues of race, I'm sure you've heard of the Roads Must Fall campaign. Uh, John Cecil Rhodes, who was an industrialist, but also a slavist, he owned slaves. And, uh, and his name was given to Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Uh, students at the University of Cape Town campaigned and protested, and the statue of Rhodes was removed. In Oriel College, Oxford, his alma mater, uh, the Rhodes Must Fall campaign reached there. They reached a different conclusion. But it shows you that the discourse and debate about race and color and the future of South Africa goes ahead. President Obama, when he first visited Africa as president, it was to my country, Ghana, that he said, Africa needs strong institutions and not strong men. He wasn't the first to say it, by the way. He is the most reported person as saying it, but many Africans have been saying it for a very long time. Now South Africa is a case in point where it really does need strong institutions. Uh, President uh, Jacob Zuma, who is in power there, is in trouble. He is seen as being fickle. He is seen as having focused more on what his needs are than the country's needs. But young South Africans are rising up. For example, they had a hashtag fees must fall campaign when it looked as if there was going to be a fee hike for universities. They were on the streets, black, white, pink, purple, all the colors of South Africa saying no. They managed to win that battle and uh, the ba government backed down and the university authorities backed down. I think everybody knows that university education is now expensive wherever you are in the world. But South Africans are saying education is so important for this burgeoning democracy post-apartheid that everybody must have the opportunity to have tertiary education so that they can take their continent forward. So when the far west and deep down south succeed, we all succeed as a continent. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was wonderful, wonderful conversation for me, and I'm sure it was for the audience, but it's not going to end now. Uh, now we are going to take questions from the audience. Uh, I would ask you uh, when you want to pose your question, 
that you come to the microphone so that everyone can hear you, uh, particularly Ms. Quist Arcton, but I'll certainly. Yeah, of but, but, but also uh, the entire audience. Uh, and please give us questions rather than commentaries. Thank you. Hello. Yes, ma'am. I'm really enjoying this. I, I have a question. Your name, please, ma'am. Laurie yeah. Perlman. Can you give us an example of an African nation that you think is doing very well in terms of developing jobs for young people, using its young people, to come back to the professor's earlier point? Thank you. Rwanda is doing very well. Doing very well on several fronts. Uh, jobs, gender equality, making itself a technology hub in the Great Lakes region. And from those points of view, Rwanda is doing very well. Educationally, it is ensuring that its children are well educated. But politically, Rwanda is doing poorly. So there is this great argument going on, on and off the continent. Can you have true development if you do not have political freedom? So we have Rwanda doing excellently for a small country with its history of genocide and so on. Doing well on many, many counts, but politically getting a fail. Sir, please come forward. Hi. My name is Steve Katz. It's a pleasure to finally meet you in person after listening to you on the radio. Pleased to meet you. And I, I guess my, my question is, uh, uh, what's your, your assessment of just the the magnitude of the threat of terrorism in Africa vis-a-vis you know, -vis Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab. I mean, as a Westerner listening on NPR, the news periodically starts with these horrific attacks in Kenya and other places in Africa, Sudan, so Somalia. It's, is it all consuming? I, mean, I understand it's a sprawling continent with over a billion people, 50, more than 50 nations, but is the, the impression that the con continent is being consumed by terrorism, is that an accurate one? No. Or at least parts no, of it? No, it's not. And I think that's probably us, the journalists, who give that impression. Because, of course, terrorism resonates all over the world, wherever you are. You in the U.S. have witnessed uh, what happened on September the 11th, 2000. And wow, where are we? 2000, yeah. 9-11, uh, you call it here, don't you? But others are also suffering terrorism. But it's not all African countries. Um, for you have mentioned the Sahel Belt going from Mauritania all across to Somalia and Uganda, Boko Haram in uh, Nigeria, spilling across the borders into Chad, Niger, and Cameroon, Al-Shabaab operating out of Somalia. We all saw what happened at Westgate Mall back in 2013, what happened last year at the university in the Northeast. So extremism, violent extremism, is a problem. There are some countries that are not hit by it at all. I live in Senegal. But Senegal, right now, the United Nations Africa Military Command, AFRICOM it's called, is holding uh, Flintlock 2016 it's called, it is holding uh, operations 
how to deal with you know counterterrorism exercises and it's doing that with many armies from all over the continent as well as armies in Europe and from Canada they are meeting there for example tomorrow I'm missing because I'm here or on Thursday there when a building is under siege how do you respond? Senegal is taking this very seriously indeed. It knows it is within the region. It knows it is a Muslim country and that it could face the sorts of attacks that we saw in Mali, the capital Bamako in uh, December, and then again in Burkina Faso in January, where these terror groups attacked and took lives, many foreign lives, because they were showing that they can strike uh, popular hotels, restaurants that uh, are frequented by foreigners. So it is on everybody's radar. There is no doubt about that. But we mustn't give a false impression that it is happening all over the country. There are some countries that are untouched by extremist violence at the moment, but are aware that it can happen to them, and so are now taking precautions. That is certainly happening in Africa. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Sister Cousins, please come to the microphone. Thank you for coming and bringing us some information on Africa. Um, I try to be a journalist myself. I have a little blog called Lady Blah Blah. So you are a journalist, <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> and about two years ago, I put up a, a blog on Africa doing, making a solar car and um, asking what's going on with that. I mean, I understand that governments are not really being responsive to the youth, but what about the entrepreneurial spirits? Uh, why can't they create the solar car? Where has it gone? Who's suppressing it? And I know that has to do with the environment, and I know that a um, the woman who won, an African woman, won the Nobel Prize for planting trees there. So there is some consciousness there. So I'm just wondering um, why they don't go forward with the solar car and provide jobs uh, since they were the leadership in that. One other question. Every time they sell something about Africa, I see these starving babies. And I'm saying, look, you got perfect climate year round. Why can't you feed your babies, your children, your family? I don't understand. What, what's going on? Thank you, citizen journalist. <laughs> I can't answer for why there isn't a solar car in Africa. I wish I were an entrepreneur. Uh, I get a, paid a lot more than I do as a public radio journal, <laughs> journalist. I'd, I'm, I'm going to look up your blog and see who, who's thought of that idea and why it hasn't happened. But solar energy is being harnessed in Africa. Why? Because one thing we have is an abundance of sunshine. Exactly. You know, all, over, all over the continent. But I think perhaps because there are so many priorities. Energy is a huge one. I mean, we have countries that are dealing with rolling blackouts, South Africa, my own country, Ghana, you know. And so when we have energy coming from nature, why don't we use it? Some governments are doing better than others. And, and also the public sector is going into, I think it's because the initial outlay, capital expenditure is so expensive. You need to be sure that you're going to get, yeah, infrastructure of course, prof, a huge problem because you do need to have the sort of infrastructure that, that often many African countries don't have. Going to agriculture, more and more countries are now saying we have to diversify our economies. Look what has happened to world markets for copper, for gold, 
for you name any sort of mineral for oil. Look at the giants, Nigeria, Angola, those oil producing countries are suffering. Nigeria's currency, the Naira, has bottomed out. The president refuses, he says, he's not going to devalue. He said, I won't sell my currency. Many Nigerians say, but you've got to be realistic. That is the reality. Look at South Africa. Uh, South Africa is a top producer of platinum, for example. South Africa's currency has hit rock bottom, the rand. So many people are turning, uh, are looking at the options. And of course, agriculture is a huge one. But right now, we have a drought in Southern Africa. South Africa, Zimbabwe, Malawi, uh, Namibia, Botswana, all these countries that have traditionally, South Africa has industrialized farming. But right now, they are having to import maize, corn, which is their staple because because El Nino, climate change, whatever the climate denialists are saying, are affecting these countries. Ethiopia is another. I think there is an awareness that Africa has got to diversify because not only can it not feed its population of one billion and growing, but it must because children who are, uh, children become stunted if they don't get what they need between one and three in terms of nutrition. And there's more awareness of this, but it's a, you know, it's a case of political will. When it comes to election time, people are thinking of other, leadership is thinking of other things, not about feeding its nation. It's thinking about winning votes. Thank you. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Hello, I have two questions about Senegal. W would you give us your name, please? My name is Katie McDermott. Um, my first question is, why has Senegal been able to avoid some of the extremism and violence that's been in the Sahel region? And do you think it's in a vulnerable position now? Can you wait for my report that's due out next week? <laughs> <laughs> I'm working, it's one of the pieces I'm working on at the moment. You know, I, and I've spoken to many Senegalese on this subject, and they say because the Senegalese uh, at 97, 96%, well anyway, majority Muslim, an incredibly stable country despite a, a separatist rebellion in the south, and a very tolerant country where Sufi Islam is, you know, tolerance, everybody gets on. Senegalese, if it's a Muslim holiday, if it's a Christian holiday, all holy days, religious holy days, are considered public holidays and people live side by side in peace. Many Senegalese will tell you it's their culture. It's peace as a basis is part of their culture. They also have the Muslim brotherhoods, the Murid and the Tijaniya, who are, have huge numbers of Adiran followers, huge numbers of followers. And you know, their priorities are not to do with war and terrorism and extremism. So Senegal is now talking practically, is, um, is in trying to ensure, because it sees that not so far away in Burkina Faso, not so far away, in fact, next door in Mali, look what has happened with uh, insurgents managing to hold hostage and kill people. So it is stepping up. It's, uh, it's not just relying on the fact that it is a country of peace and, and tolerance. It is stepping up security. It is hosting the flintlock uh, counterterrorism 
operations as we speak, and it is making sure, it says, that it has its intelligence network, military intelligence network, is doing its work around the country. Some imams, some Muslim religious leaders, about 10 people when I left Senegal 10 days ago, 10 people were being held. They're either being held for, charged with, uh, in, I'm thinking in French now, I suppose it's, it would translate as apologism. Yeah, apologism for, for terrorism. People who have either been caught with such material in their house, other people, other imams who have been too close to what the, uh, the Senegalese authorities say is have links with Boko Haram. So they're not taking chances. I think especially West Africa and uh, along that Sahel belt towards Somalia, countries realize that it can hit us anytime. We need to be prepared for it. Thank you. Thank you. Y yes, sir, please, please come to the mic. Tell us your name. Uh, yes, my, my name is Markel Alukta. Um, I have a question. Um, how do you see the, the industrial, the economic pendulum swinging from China and or South Asia where the economic slowdown is happening in China now, the, the, the industrial economic uh, slowdown, and China is now starting to offshore their, a lot of their um, low-cost industrial um, uh, industries to, to South Asia. Do you see the, uh, anywhere there's a possibility that that could find its way to Africa? It already has. Mm. Take Ethiopia, for example. Because um, just recently, um, two major pr uh, private equity, uh, the Carlyle Group uh, out of Washington, D.C., and KKR out of New York City, they invested um, just over half a billion dollars in, in um, private equity in, in Nigeria and uh, also down in, in South Africa. And, um, how do you see that if there's a you know, possibility in that it can become a, a low-cost industrial giant like China is? The continent of Africa, you yes. mean? It's making steps, but at the moment they're baby steps towards that. But you do, at least there is a focus now on that Africa must industrialize and industrialized quickly and efficiently with the infrastructure that is needed to make the continent not just a place that exports its raw materials, but that refines and get, you know, gets the beneficiation out of what Africa produces. And that manufacturing, I mean, when I was a child, there was manufacturing all over Africa, but you ha now have the textile industry, for example, that um, China has taken over, and textiles in Nigeria, in Democratic Republic of Congo, it's cheaper to buy Chinese. So, and a lot of people are poor, so they are buying Chinese. I think African leaders have realized the error of their ways, and so they are trying, but it, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. The, the last thing I, I want to I say, um, I, I, I visit West Africa and I have, I have uh, Oh, sorry. Talking to the mic, sir. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I visited West Africa and Senegal, and I have roots there. Um, 
my wife is from from the continent and so forth and whenever I go about um, my travels throughout the United States I always tell African Americans to please visit Africa you don't know what you're missing <laughs> hear ye hear Thank ye you. and you are all welcome yeah. to Africa <laughs> Thanks. Tell us your name. You. Don't forget to tell us your name, sir. Sure. My name's Cal Angus. Thank you so much for coming. Thank um, you. I teach uh, English 112, and I brought my class here today to listen to you. And I think it's important for them to uh, hear you speak with such passion and eloquence on the topics that you've covered. And they we want to hear from you, students. Please. Yes. Ah. <laughs> I don't know if any of them are behind me. I don't <laughs> think so. But uh, a few of them might have to leave soon. Our class is almost up. But my question's a little different. So I was wondering. We are about to start our research papers in this class, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your process in when you are either assigned a story or are deciding what questions to ask, whether it's on a topic that's high profile in the news like terrorism or something that's equally as important but not as high profile maybe about culture and different African cultures. Different African cultures. What kinds of questions do you think it's important to ask first when you first start reporting on a story? Um, and where do you go for information, that kind of thing? You know what I do most? I listen. I, sometimes your questions don't matter too much. Uh, what you need to do is bring out of the person you're speaking to. Make them feel comfortable. Make them feel at home. Make them want to share the information that you know they have. So, you know, don't ask selfish questions. Ask questions that will draw them in and questions that will encourage them to share what they know, what they are innovating, what they are inventing, what they are playing, what they are singing with you. And do your research. Do your research. Make sure you don't arrive at an interview or uh, whatever it may be, uh, not having done your homework. It, yeah. It's not always possible. And sometimes you meet people, you know, it's, it's serendipity. And you may meet some uh, a person who then gives you the most extraordinary interview. But to all people embarking, not only in journalism, whatever it might be, I say make sure you listen. We can, uh, you know, I talk a lot. But when it's time to learn other people's stories, open your ears and listen to what they're saying. Because people will tell you the most extraordinary stories where if you're talking all the time, as I'm doing now, you won't have time to hear. Thank you. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. Bonjour et bienvenue. Merci. Uh, Amy Dulac. <laughs> um, on behalf of the French-speaking people, I'd like to know about the state of francophonie en Afrique. Um, French, the French language is used by people around the globe, but in particular, Africa has a huge, rich history of French culture, French language, not French nationality, but the French language. I'd like to know if the French language still has a strong presence, especially in Maghreb, Senegal, um, and the state of the native languages of Africa, because there are so we many. We drop the word native. Okay. We just say the languages the of languages Africa. The languages of Africa. There's yeah. so many of because them. Because there are so many and they are mm -hmm. so important. Let me take Senegal, for example. French is the official language. Senegal is a former French colony, I'm sure you know that. And there are many of them in West Africa. F uh, Senegal, Mali, Burkina Faso, I mean, uh, Mauritania. But increasingly, you will find that uh, French is the language of instruction in schools, yes. But on the street, 
in their homes. Many people are speaking Wolof, which has become really the lingua franca of Senegal, although the Wolof excuse me, as an ethnic group, are quite small. But you find that in many countries. In Ghana, for example, the tree has become the lingua franca. In East Africa, as you know, Swahili is a lingua franca. So coming back to your issue about French, yes, French is spoken and it will always be spoken, and I think it will remain the official language in uh, the French-speaking countries. But know that African languages are also very much taken as... as I think people are, are, are quite rightly proud of their own languages. So although France, French is the imported language and is the language of instruction and the language of ministries and the language of government, people want to speak their own languages, they want to share their languages, and they want to make sure that their languages endure. But French isn't going anywhere, it's still there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, Jean-Pierre Burwald, and my question is basically related to uh, your, your previous uh, response. Uh, I'm curious, uh, I always hear you reporting from Dakar, and uh, my curiosity is, uh, as a Ghanaian and an Anglophone, are you based in Senegal, and if so, why? of all the African countries that you could have chosen? Well, uh, when NPR was opening a new Africa Bureau, it already had one in yeah. South Africa, and we're going back to 2004 now, and to be honest, Senegal had better comms than Ghana, which would have been another choice, or Nigeria. I said to them, I'm very happy to go to Nigeria, but I don't think I'll be able to cover West and Central Africa as well as I could, because Nigeria is such a huge story in the end. So it came down to Senegal being a good regional hub for planes, uh, flights as well, uh, an easy place to get to most places, and that's why I had the choice, and that's why I chose Senegal. And I speak French, but that wasn't, you know, that was neither here nor there. It was an easy place to report from. It was easy to set up there, and that's why I chose to be based the in Senegal. Hub. I mean, yep. all the mm -hmm. SAA flights yep. come through Senegal. Yep. But it could have been, it could have been Ghana, it could have been Nigeria. I'm very happy in Senegal, although I may be relocating to Ghana. Okay, well, yep. thank you very thank kindly. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Hello, my name is Merck Kemmel, and I recall you speaking of the Chinese presence in African countries, and I want to know how can African countries build strong inst institutions and collaborate with other nations without becoming susceptible to exploitation? Ha! Good question. If I knew the answer to that one. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is a tough one, it is, because of obviously you want partners outside your immediate continent, but you're quite right that Africa and African countries need to work much closer together. There are regional units such as ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, that does pretty well. I mean, I'm a Ghana passport holder and I can go to 15 African countries without a visa. So there are some real advantages of belonging to a regional community. But as an entity, ha is the African Union doing enough to bring the countries of the continent together to speak with one voice on the important issues. Yes, we all have our different cultures, we all have our different priorities, but on the key ones for the continent, are we speaking with one voice? And I would say we are not, and why not? The African Union came into being, if I remember, 2001 
in Durban, South Africa. This is 15 odd years later. Has it done more for Africa than its predecessor, the Organization of African Unity? It is only when we speak with one voice that we will be able to take on the world, be it China, be it the US, be it Europe, be it South Asia, be it the Far East. But if we're all working individually, bilaterally, as our small entities on the continent, then that's not going to work. If people are working with us piecemeal and not working with us as a group, and of course there have to be bilateral relations, that I understand, but it is only if we are 54 strong, nobody can beat us. We don't understand why our leaders don't understand that, to answer your question. So why do you think the African Union is not as strong, is not as collaborative? Because I think people have agendas, and I think leaders have agendas. Thank you. And sometimes they deal with, and that, that's not Africa exclusively, you know? Uh, your leader surely has an agenda. <laughs> European leaders have agendas. And, you know, in, that can mean divide and rule instead of unite and move forward. When are, perhaps when you, young lady, and your generation are in control of Africa, there will be an understanding that united we stand, divided we fall and don't move forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Limley. I'm John Limley. I, uh, I'm a devoted fan. Your magnificent voice is matched only by the intelligence of your reporting. Would you for a moment play foreign correspondent? There is an election going on here. What would be an African <laughs> or your own personal perspective on, uh, as it were, current events uh, in this great country. I think uh, eyes are popping out at, the <laughs> at uh, this year's presidential election. In a, you know, a, a, a friend in Dakar said to me, c'est du jamais vu. We have never seen anything like this before, you know? I, I think maybe because Africa looks to the US and sees, apart from what happened in Florida when George Bush kind of beat uh, Al Gore and so on, that this is a country where elections happen properly, transparently, on time, they're not postponed, and the, Ameri the will of the American people becomes, is sort of translated in who becomes the next president. So. Many Africans that I have spoken to in the few countries since the campaign started are saying, well, who, th for a start, you know who they know. They know Hillary Clinton. Why? Because she was uh, Secretary of State and she visited, she traveled extensively in Africa. And of course, they know Bill Clinton, who was the president and traveled to Africa. So they'll know the name of, uh, of the Bush candidate who has withdrawn because, of course, his family. But I think uh, Donald Trump is many Africans don't necessarily know who Donald Trump is, you know, but now they do. And, and the question many, especially Muslims are asking is, but how can America even consider a candidate who says that America should close its doors to Muslims? You know, they, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, people are bemused. They're, they're quite bemused by what is going on now. And, and as, uh, as uh, Mr. Trump is winning, uh, n not the nomination yet, but is doing, they're also asking themselves, but is that really what, it, does he represent the view from America? Mm -hmm. have, have we 
for in some way misinterpreted how Americans see us and perceive us. There are, so there are a lot of questions being asked. It's making people think and it's making them sit up and listen and watch and really uh, take cognizance of what is going on here. I just don't think people had expected it. But then had you? <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yes, ma'am. I'm short, so. yes, like me. <laughs> yeah. um, hi, I'm Shaheen Pasha. My global journalism class. What is a lovely right here. name for a course. Yes, right there. Yeah. I wanted to ask you just from the standpoint of technology and journalism, because covering Africa, as you said, I mean, just covering one country is such an extreme thing because there's so much happening. But how has technology helped in just spreading the story of the different occurrences in Africa from one point to another? And how do you work? as a journalist within a system where sometimes in certain countries it's not an easy environment for journalists. So how does technology sort of interplay with um, your ability to tell your stories? First of all, technology has just aided immeasurably with the dissemination of information everywhere in the world, yes, but especially in Africa because it means that there is access mm -hmm. which has really changed the game because people are using social media, they're using the internet in all its forms to communicate, to share information, to receive information, and that is hugely important. It means that everybody, not everybody, sorry, many people of course do not have access because it is still expensive to have access to the internet in many African countries, but certainly those in the educated uh, classes are well informed, not only about what's going on in their countries, but in neighboring countries and further in field. And I think that's very important. In countries such as Ethiopia, where the government still has a grasp on uh, communications, you, you can feel the difference. Yeah. People are fighting for freedom. They're fighting for access to such things. And it makes it much more difficult. And when you compare, say, Ethiopia with Kenya, next door, that you see where, uh, where access to technology and access to the internet has made such a difference in Kenya and where the Ethiopians, although uh, economically they are doing better and they're doing many good things, but when there is not freedom of information, it can hold you back. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take two more questions and we've got to let... We've got three people standing up, so should we take all three? If you're willing. Yes, yes. Excuse my left mm hand. -hmm. Thank you. Hi, yeah. I'm Irvin Stab, and uh, Lori and I have been working for many years in Rwanda and some other countries in Africa, Burundi and Congo on reconciliation. And I have two questions. One of them is, uh, it has been long problematic for us that in Rwanda, people are not allowed to talk about Hutu and Tutsi, mm -hmm. that it all goes underground so that they cannot address issues in relation to each other, only the way the government wants to do it, and justice is one-sided. Uh, do you, th what do you think about that, that people are not able to talk about them, their identity, their membership in a group, it's all, that we are all Rwandans, all one. And the other question that I have is, you know, a few years ago, 
are my associates or associates, and we were talking about Rwanda in comparison to Burundi, and we were saying, oh, in Burundi, people can freely talk about Hutu and Tutsi and can express themselves, and there is much more freedom of expression. And you know what's happening in Burundi now. There has been a fair amount of violence and disorder and so on. So how bad really is what I have always considered really problematic, the lack of political freedom in Rwanda. Well, I spoke about it. I said Rwanda is making advances economically. There's no doubt about it, and it's made there have been very many advantages. But because there is not political freedom, you have put it in your terms that people are not allowed to talk about their ethnic identity and that they are clamped down and repressed. That it, 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 it's almost as if it's a problem waiting to happen post-Paul Kagame. You know, there, are, there is no doubt that he has leadership skills. When you look at some of the things that have happened in Rwanda, a small country coming out of genocide, there's no doubt that there has been progress. But if people do not feel free and do not feel able to express themselves, who knows how they are going to react? Across the border, Burundi, where there was freedom of speech, you have one president who decided, knowing that a bid for a third term could create problems, all the progress where, uh, you know, B Burundi had made efforts. They were able to talk about their past. And Burundi has also had genocide, not to the extent of the 1994 genocide, but over the decades, where one person's determination to hold on to power has led to this explosion of violence. And all the progress that Burundi has made is, is just literally frittering away. You know, people are now uh, refugees across the borders. They are displaced within their own country, and the violence hasn't ended. So you're right, which system do, does one choose? It's very difficult to say, because Rwanda appears stable and is making economic progress. But if there is not freedom, how secure is that development? Burundi? which looked as if it was making progress, is now roiled in violence. These are the questions Africans are grappling with and must deal with because, of course, if you don't feel free, that can lead to all sorts of explosions. When people feel that they are being suppressed and repressed, look what happened in South Africa. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Scanlon. <clears throat> So I'm sorry if this is kind of too broad of a question. And you are? I'm sorry if this is too broad of a question. Yes, your name. Who are you? Tell oh, us sorry, who you are, Mr. Bob, Scanlon. Bob Scanlon. I'm just a student here at mm -hmm. UMass. Um, one of the recurring themes I've learned about in colonial history is this you know, problem of European imperial powers drawing lines in the sand that usually don't remotely reflect um, religious and cultural differences in, in regions. You know, for example, we can see this in a lot of countries in the Middle East now are having a problem of not a lot of people identify with, let's say, Iraqi as a national identity. Um, my question being, to what extent is this still a problem, would you say, for, many, for African countries, this problem of you know, the national identity not being the same or having remotely as much weight as a you know, tribal or ethnic identity? And if it's not a problem, you know, how are countries you know, nation-making? How are they making a national identity you know, widespread? We've had one example, Rwanda 
But is there a national identity, even though people are not allowed to talk about their ethnic origins? You, you question that. And yes, you, have, uh, you still have people who are voting on, along ethnic lines, as opposed to because the candidate is the best person for the nation. I, you know, there are lots of countries that have got over it, I have to say. There are lots of countries that have a national identity and are going forward. But for those who haven't, look what is happening in South Sudan. It can lead to, after fighting the North and gaining independence in 2011, at the end of 2013, South Sudanese were fighting each other. You know, after having fought the longest civil war in Africa, 50 years, and some people having lived all their lives in displaced people's camps or refugee camps, now the South Sudanese were fighting each other, and it was along ethnic lines. So, but leaders also manipulate this issue. When it is convenient for them, suddenly you become a Hutu or a Tutsi. You become, you know, a Kikuyu, or you become a Luo. You become an Ashanti, or you become a, or whatever, a Ga. But we must not allow ourselves to be manipulated. But it is so easy to do so because people feel invested in that person. If the person from the same ethnic identity as me is in charge, I will be safe. So you can understand why they go that route. But it's a real problem that has not yet been addressed sufficiently, I feel, in many countries. Although, having said that, Senegal, for example, people don't identify you by your tribe. Or if they do in identify you by your ethnic group, it, it, it's neither here nor there. But in many other countries, it, it, it is either a positive, an advantage for you, or a great disadvantage. Economic conjuncture plays a role in that, too. Definitely. Thank you. Just Thank like, you. say, Northern Ireland and... <clears throat> yes, sir. My name is Samuel Armstrong. Uh, with your permission, this is not a question. Is that okay? Uh, Prof said as long as it's no brief. Oh, it'll be brief. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy your accent very much, <laughs> and everybody in, in Africa. Uh, I found very interesting when you were traveling down the river on a boat in some country. The Congo River. Heard it on NPR, NEPR, and I uh, found it very interesting. And uh, that's what I have to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I wish you could all take. I wish you could all take a ride down the Congo River because it was an extraordinary, extraordinary adventure and odyssey. And it was, you know, I, I describe it as a floating village, just getting to know people over whatever it was, a week to 10 days that we were traveling, you know, from the quarrels to the petty arguments to people cooking to monkeys being used in stew. It was, it was, it was extraordinary. A apart from the magnificent and majestic Congo River that we were traveling down, it really is, as the historian I spoke to said, it is the mother and the father and the backbone of the country. So if you do get the opportunity, do jump on a, I can't even call it a barge, it was like two bits of something <laughs> thrown together and, and pulled down the Congo River, but it was an, an experience that I will, I will keep forever. And, and that really did stay with listeners. They, I think because they felt that they were there. And that's so important for us as reporters to draw you in 
And because there were so many characters there, everybody could tap into someone and learn something new every day. So thank you for listening. It's been a real delight being here with you. Thank you.